Well, good morning. If you'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this morning, I want to look at a single verse in this chapter. Verse 7. It's one short verse that simply asks three questions. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Three questions. So that verse is its own outline. Three questions that each of them rebukes the arrogance of human conceit. And the questions remind us of the debt we owe to God's sovereign grace. This verse is about the sovereignty of God. And the passage is a reproof and a correction to everything that is man-centered in our theology. And it's a reminder that the truth of God's sovereignty ought to make us humble, not proud. Let me remind you of the context of this passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. This was a young and very troubled church filled with new believers. Mostly they were Gentiles who had come out of a pagan background. And the church itself was set in a culture of extreme paganism. The largest building in the center of town in Corinth was a, a, a large temple to the god Apollo. It was built with enormous stone columns that still dominate the ruins of Corinth today. Corinth was also the home of a temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the, the goddess of love. And there was a large temple complex built atop a massive stone pillar in, uh, on the edge of town called Acrocorinth. It was a natural formation, a large, high, fortified hill just on the outskirts of the city. And employed at the temple of Aphrodite were more than a thousand temple prostitutes, both men and women, slaves whose job it was to service strangers who came to worship Aphrodite, who was perceived to be the goddess of love. And visiting those temple courtesans, was deemed a religious sacrament by the pagans of that time. Corinth was world-renowned for the savage lifestyle of the people who lived there and for the immoral behavior of people who visited there. The city was filled with these brothels, and it was overrun with immorality, and it was shot through with the, the most gross and ungodly forms of paganism. I, I like to compare Corinth to Las Vegas today. You know, Las Vegas in America is a city that's filled with immorality and vice built around the gambling industry. And Corinth was similar, except the attractions at Corinth were not gambling casinos. They were, they were temples. And this gave the debauchery of that city a religious veneer and it able, enabled people in that culture to regard their immorality as something sacred. That's how they thought of it. That's how they portrayed it. And so Corinth had temples everywhere, world famous temples to Apollos and Hermes and Heracles and Athena and Poseidon. They all had temples there. And one of the largest temples in the city was one that was dedicated to Aesculapius, who was the god of healing. People would bring these little terracotta replicas of body parts to the temple, signifying whatever part of their body needed to be healed. And if you visit the ruins of ancient Corinth today, you'll see the ruins of all those temples. And archaeologists have even unearthed some of these little clay body parts that were offered in acts of worship at the temple of Aesculapius. But... The main focus of activity at Corinth were those brothels, and there was row after row of them. You can still see them in the ruins of Corinth today, and they dominate the city. It's the most striking thing about Corinth. 
the number of houses of prostitution that were operated there, with all of the prostitution going on, you wonder how any other kind of business could be transacted in that city. But in the midst of that immoral and superstitious culture was this community of Christians, the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul, you know, spent 18 months at Corinth when the church was founded there. The biblical record of his ministry in Corinth takes up most of Acts chapter 18. Luke records that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he went first to the synagogue, and which is what he always did. And he preached the gospel there every Sabbath. Acts 18 verse 4 says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. But for the most part, the Jews in Corinth rejected the message. Listen to Acts 18 starting at verse 6. Luke writes, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, he left the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul didn't go very far from the synagogue. And then it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So the main guy in the synagogue was converted together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So most of the people in the church at Corinth were Gentiles. And they had been converted out of the worst kind of paganism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says to them, You know that when you were pagans... You were led astray by mute idols. And so this young church, consisting of mostly new believers who had been converted out of this grossly immoral heathen culture, the church was understandably beset with problems. The paganism and the debauchery of Corinth poisoned the culture of the entire city and it even contaminated the church. So Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians was written to deal systematically with several problems that had crippled that struggling fellowship of young believers. And one of the prominent problems that they faced... One of the, in fact, it is the very first thing Paul addresses. They had a spirit of sectarianism. They were having a hard time getting along with each other. The church was divided. And after Paul left Corinth and moved on in his ministry, the believers at Corinth began to fragment into little groups, little teams, and banded together in these competing factions that were based on their loyalties to the various teachers whose ministries had influenced the people there. And so Paul confronts this tendency at the very start of his epistle. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So he names four factions there. And then he asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he spends three chapters, three whole chapters, exposing the folly of human wisdom. And reminding them that the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness as far as wise men and philosophers are concerned. There's nothing sophisticated about it or philosophically sharp. And so he directs their hearts to the message of the cross, which he says, this is the wisdom and power of God. And then he closes chapter 3 with this summary, starting at verse 21 of chapter 3. Therefore, he says, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And the point he's making is this. 
Anyone who would have the sort of factious, sectarian attitude that would pit Paul against Apollos or set Peter against the other apostles, anyone who would do that could only be motivated by one thing, and that is sinful pride. They probably pretended to be concerned about the purity of the gospel or, or the deep level of their theology or something like that. But Paul says, no, at the root of it really is just pride, pride in human wisdom or pride in your spiritual pedigree or simply a proud, contentious attitude that despises harmony in the body of Christ and then seeks to exalt self at the expense of others. So it was a carnal pride, fleshly. And Paul says so plainly in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a fleshly way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being fleshly? Now, if there had been any tendency in the Apostle Paul himself to cultivate that kind of carnal pride, I'm sure he would have sided with the Paul party and said, you know, that these people who said, I am of Paul, the followers of Paul, they're the ones who were the best Christians. But Paul doesn't say that. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? We are servants to whom, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's saying, why are you following men? If anything good has happened to you, it's the doing of God. That's what Paul and Apollos all preach. So how can you say you follow Paul or you follow Apollos when really you owe your loyalty to God first of all? And Paul says he regarded himself as nothing but a servant. And he urged the Corinthians to have that same perspective. Let's look at one another as fellow servants. So that takes us to chapter 4 and I want you to look there now. He starts by saying once more that he is nothing but a steward of the gospel. His teaching is not Paul's own personal philosophy. This is not Paul's theology. It is the theology Paul teaches, but he didn't invent it. This was a message that was committed to him as a stewardship. And the same thing is true of Apollos and Peter and all the apostles. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the, ministry, of the mysteries of God. So there was no need to pit Peter against Paul. They were stewards accountable to the same master. And a steward is accountable only to his master. It doesn't matter how other men judge him. If he's a steward, the only thing that counts is whether his master deems him faithful. Verse 3, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, Paul says. So he was willing to stand or fall according to how God judges him. And he urged the Corinthians to stop comparing Peter and Paul and, and Apollos and just leave all the judgments about men to God alone, who is the proper judge. And he will judge in his perfect time. Why? Because this sectarian spirit, this divisiveness, was cultivating fleshly pride among the Corinthians, and that was poisoning the church. Verse 6 that you may learn by us, in other words, follow our example, follow the example of Paul and Apollos and, and Peter, and learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And there he establishes the principle of sola scriptura. You don't go beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. You see, their sectarianism was not only wrong to pit Paul against Apollos, but this attitude was also causing the Corinthians themselves to be puffed up and arrogant against one another. 
And so you had one group saying, you know, we like Paul because of the depth of his teaching and, and the soundness of his doctrine. Paul was the best trained of all the apostles. So we're the best Christians, they said, because we are the finest theologians. And then you had another group saying, well, we follow Apollos because he is the most eloquent orator. He's the best preacher and the best motivator. And we're the best Christians because we have accumulated the biggest following. And then you had another group, a third group saying, well, we prefer Cephas. That's Peter, of course, because his teaching is so practical and so down to earth. And Peter is so real. He's a fallible person, just like the rest of us. And we're the best Christians because our faith is more practical and less theoretical than the rest of you. And then this is the one that amazes me. According to 1 Corinthians 1.12, there was even a fourth team, a fourth faction, a group of super spiritual people who said, well, we reject all of those labels. We follow no human teacher and no human system. We are of Christ, Christ alone and no creed. And in the name of love and unity, we reject and exclude all the rest of you. And so you can see how that kind of sectarianism naturally fosters pride and arrogance and haughtiness and conceit of every kind, and most of all, division in the church. These people were, in Paul's words, puffed up in favor of one against another. I like that expression, puffed up. It's how it's translated in the King James. In fact, that, the, the Greek word that's translated that way, puffed up, appears seven times in the Bible, and six of those times are in 1 Corinthians. Once also in Colossians 2, verse 18, seven times total. But this is the first time it appears. It's from the Greek word fusio, which means inflated puffed up. It speaks of a scornful and unloving kind of arrogance. And look at how Paul uses it through this epistle. Down in verses 18 and 19 of our chapter, chapter 4, he mentions those who were arrogant against him because they thought he's not going to come back to Corinth and see us in person. And they were being arrogant about that. It's the same Greek word, puffed up, and in chapter 5, verse 2, he mentions people who were arrogant because they were, they were proud of their extreme moral threshold because they had actually tolerated the behavior of this man who was living with his father's wife. And they were proud about that and arrogant about it, puffed up. It's the same word. They were bloated with arrogance rather than being humbled by the fact that a man in their midst was actually living in gross immorality, so, so immoral that it shocked even the unbelievers in Corinth. And if you could shock an unbeliever in Corinth with your immorality, that was pretty shocking. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, so-called knowledge, intellectual knowledge, puffs up, he says, but love builds up. And in chapter 13, verse 4, he says this is one of the characteristics of love, that it is not arrogant, it's not puffed up. And in fact, in the King James Version, that's how it's translated. Love is not puffed up. So, to be puffed up is to have an inflated ego, to be arrogant. It's a description of fleshly pride. And it's inherently unloving, because love is not puffed up. And in a way, it is the very antithesis of love, really. It's a kind of, I'm better than you, arrogance. And it, this was a particular problem among the Corinthians. It was the kind of attitude a corrupt culture would naturally tend to foster. And it was the very thing that had caused this church to divide into competing factions. But Paul says that kind of inflated, arrogant ego has absolutely no place in the church. It was, listen, it was all right for the Paul people to say, 
we're concerned about theology. That's our area of interest and expertise. And in that, we look to Paul for guidance. What was not all right was for them to say, but we're better than the Peter people because they're not good theologians and they're only concerned about practical behavior. Paul is telling them, look, all of you get along with one another and drop this foolish bickering and division. It's okay to disagree with one another. It's not okay to despise one another. And in order to get them to face their pretentiousness for what it was, he poses a brief series of three questions to them. And all three questions are contained in this one verse that we're looking at this morning. So look at the verse again, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And I, I think that first question ought to be translated pretty much the way it is in the King James Version. Who makes you to differ from one another? Who makes you different from the guy next to you? Or here's the NIV. Who makes you different from anyone else? That's what Paul is asking them. Who made you distinctive? Who is it that gave you the things that make you stand out and be different from anyone else? And so I want to consider the questions he raises here one at a time. And let's try to draw from these questions the lessons Paul is intending for the Corinthians. And in fact, for those of you who, who take pride in your doctrine, there's a doctrinal lesson here. For those who are puffed up about the superiority of a more practical approach to religion. There are some practical lessons here. And for those who are inclined to glory in men, there's a crucial lesson about the sovereignty and glory of God alone. So let's look at these questions one at a time. First, there's a question that exalts God's sovereignty. Then the second question is a question that extols divine grace. And then there's the third question that exposes human pride. And so we'll look at them in that order. And if, you, if you're a note taker, good for you. I'll try to give them slowly enough that you can take down that outline. And so I'll give it to you again as we go through the text. First point is a question that exalts God's sovereignty. You can write it down like that. It's a question that exalts God's sovereignty. So consider this first question. For who makes you different from anyone else? And have you ever seriously contemplated that question? Who made you the way you are? I mean, are you tempted to think of yourself as a self-made man or a woman? Do you, in your secret thoughts, do you wish to take credit for your virtues? Because let's face it, that is the natural tendency of the fallen human heart. It's a tendency we all have. We pride ourselves in things that should never be a source of pride in the first place. You may be smarter or stronger or wealthier or more beautiful than all the rest of us, but you have to face the question, who gave you those advantages? Who made you that way? And a little reflection will reveal that if there's anything about you that makes you superior to the rest of us, it's not really your doing in the first place. It was God who gave you the skills and abilities and gifts that you are probably tempted to take the most pride in. And so don't miss the point of the question Paul is asking here. Some, I think some commentators miss it completely. I read several commentaries where it was suggested that the correct answer to this question is that there really is no important difference between one person and another. And so they try to shoehorn Paul into a 21st century notion of political correctness where we're all egalitarians. We're all the same. There's n none of us are in any way superior to the others as if he meant to say that all of us are exactly the same in every way that's important. And in fact, coming from America, I'll tell you, this is one of the canon dogmas of American politics. Our declaration of independence says, starts with these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And of course, the writers of the Declaration of Independence were actually speaking about human rights and equality of essence. They weren't, they weren't 
proclaiming the kind of egalitarianism that dominates modern thought, you know, that gives everybody a participation trophy because nobody's ever supposed to be recognized as superior to anyone else. That isn't what they were saying. They weren't trying to bring everyone down to the lowest common denominator. They were saying, we're all born with the same inalienable rights. And in fact, if you'll allow me to puncture one of the dogmas of modern political correctness, I want to point out that it is also a self-evident truth that we are not all absolutely equal in every conceivable sense. Just in this room, some of you are smarter than me. Most of you are better looking than me. Many of you are wealthier than me, and some of you have attained positions of power and influence that give you more clout than most of us have. We are not all created equal in the same sense, and Paul is not trying to deny those obvious differences. He doesn't expect his readers to reply to that question by saying, no, there's no difference between any of us. He's not claiming that everybody is absolutely the same. He's not even pretending that there aren't any valid distinctions to be made between Paul and Apollos and Cephas. He's simply saying that whatever distinctions there are between people, when it comes to their virtues and their abilities and the things that are truly worthy of praise, those things don't give us any excuse for human pride because God is the one who makes us different from one another. You think carefully about that for a moment. It's an undeniable fact that some people have advantages that the rest of us don't enjoy. I know that postmodern minds detest that fact and they think that any advantage is a sin you need to repent of. Scripture doesn't treat it like that. But in the realm of even natural abilities, for example, it's obvious that some people are endowed with physical strength that most of us don't enjoy. Some are smarter than others. Some are more privileged than others. Some people are born with fine physical attributes, strong, healthy, vigorous, powerful people. Others are born with disabilities and congenital weaknesses that plague them for all their years. We have a guy in my Sunday school class who has literally been in a wheelchair all his life. And yet also in our church, is Allison Felix. You may know her name because she's a multi-gold medal winner in the Olympics. She is the fastest woman in the world. She's faster than me. She lives in the neighborhood, and I wouldn't even try to run to keep up with her. But some are born with great beauty and striking looks and attractive physical features. But let's face it, most of us aren't that attractive. Who made the difference? Who designed us to be the way we are? And you might spend hours primping and, you know, adorning your hair and decorating your face in the mirror. But who gave you that fine head of hair? Who is it that made me have a full head of hair? And Kyle, he's bald. Yeah, all his hair is down here, right? You know, who gave you your good looks? You may be proud of your strength and your athletic skills or your artistic ability, but who gave you those gifts in the first place? Who gave the runner swift legs or the weightlifter powerful arms? Well, you might say, I work out. My strength and my good looks are at least partly the result of my own hard work. Yes, but who gave you the ability and the energy to work out? Who gave you the athletic skill and who gave you your health in the first place? Who determined that you would be whole and healthy while someone else would be confined to a hospital bed with a respirator? Strength and beauty are gifts, not virtues. There is no such thing as a self-made person. No matter who you are, and no matter what you may have achieved, you didn't create yourself. And if you enjoy any advantages that you are tempted to take pride in, you need to recognize that God is the source of all of those advantages. Every good thing and every perfect thing is a gift that comes down from above from the Father of lights. Scripture expressly says so. 
you didn't create yourself. God did. So what if you've taken those natural gifts and talents and, and you've made use of them to become prosperous in the material sense? You can't even boast because of your wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 clearly says, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. If you enjoy a position of power and prestige, you need to remember that it is ultimately God who exalts one person and humbles another. Again, Scripture is clear about that. Psalm 75, verses 4 through 7. To the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. God is the one who does this. And that's the bottom line in every case. If you prosper or if you excel in whatever you do, even if you work hard to do it, you ultimately need to recognize that it is God who enables you to do that. And in raising a basic question like this, who made you different from somebody else? The Apostle Paul is confronting the Corinthians with the truth of God's sovereignty. It's the only way you can answer this question. God is sovereign. It's not of him who willeth or of him that runneth, but of God who shows mercy. That's Romans 9, 16. Grace and blessing depend not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know ye that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Exodus 4, 11. The Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Psalm 139, verse 14. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not self-made, but designed and created by God. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. The potter has power over the clay. Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me this way? By the same token, the thing formed cannot take credit for what the potter has created. You remember that King Nebuchadnezzar the king and, the, and the king of Tyre and Herod in Acts 12, all of them were judged because they refused to give glory to God and tried to take credit for themselves because of the advantages and the prosperity that God had graciously given to them. And in fact, nobody in all of history had more reason than the Apostle Paul to think of himself as a self-made man. After his conversion, he says in Galatians 1.6, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. He went into seclusion, in other words, and got his training for apostleship in the desert in Arabia alone. And he makes a point of informing us that even when he later visited Jerusalem, he didn't see any of the Lord's apostles except for Peter and James, the Lord's brother. But even then, he didn't benefit from their help or instruction. They didn't disciple him. He never used them as stepping stones to prominence for himself. And in Romans 15, verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And in 2 Corinthians 11:23, he points out, and not in a boastful way, but this was a matter of indisputable fact, he says that he had worked harder and suffered more than any other apostle. He wasn't boasting about it, he's just pointing out that's a fact. So some might look at Paul and call him a self-made man, but that's not the way Paul saw himself. And if you put this question to him, Paul... Who makes you different from anybody else? Here's how he would answer. Here's how he did answer. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am. Yes, he would say, I worked harder than any of them. Though, he immediately adds, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He always gives God credit. There is no more humbling truth than the sovereignty of God. 
If you truly understand divine sovereignty, that ought to provoke us all to fall on our faces in gratitude to God for all the grace he shows us. Now, this is a sad fact, but I have to admit that the people I meet who, who call themselves Calvinists, they are sometimes the most arrogant people of all. They're exactly like the factious people that Paul was rebuking in Corinth, you know. We are of Calvin. We are of John Owen. We are of the Puritans. We are Covenanters. We are of Spurgeon. As if they glory in the men who they see as heroes. It's okay to honor those men for their faithfulness. But we don't glory in men. And my dear Calvinist brother, who makes you different from that struggling Christian who hasn't yet come to grips with the sovereignty of God? Who gave you your theological understanding? Who opened your eyes to see these truths? Was Calvin crucified for you? Why do you have contempt for brethren who have not reached the same exalted plane of understanding as you? Were you baptized in the name of Francis Turretin? Who enlightened you to the truth? Do you imagine that your grasp on doctrine is something meritorious that you deserve credit for? Why do you boast as if you acquired understanding by yourself on your own through your, through your own efforts or through other men? But let me also say quickly that a person who lacks humility isn't really a true Calvinist. He doesn't understand the first thing about the sovereignty of God, no matter how much he might talk about the, the subject. If he's proud of his own accomplishments, he hasn't really grasped the very essence of Calvinism and the sovereignty of God. So that's the first question. Who makes you different from anybody else? It's a question that exalts God's sovereignty. That's the note you took. Here's the second question. This is a question that extols divine grace. A question that extols divine grace. Paul goes on to ask, what do you have that you didn't receive? And this is similar to the first question. What advantage do you have that is not a gift from God? What good thing can you point to in your life that is not an expression of God's grace to you? So let's let scripture answer that question as well. John 3 verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. James 1:17, I quoted it earlier. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Daniel 2:21 and 22, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. All of those texts are saying that everything we have that is worth having and everything we are that is not sinful all of it we owe to the bounty of divine grace. It all comes from grace. Psalm 115 verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. So just as your natural gifts and talents are a gift from God, every grace and every spiritual gift you enjoy as a Christian is also a gift from God. If you're a Christian... Thank God for it. Don't imagine that you came to Christ in the first place because you're somehow more clever or more righteous than those who reject Christ. Your very first motion towards Christ was because God graciously drew you. You may not have been conscious of it. But before you ever sought him, he was seeking you. John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He, in other words, it's a gift granted by the Father. He told the apostles in John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I'm going to move this up. 
but I chose you and appointed you. He's saying that faith itself is a gift of God. Romans 12, verse 3, Paul writes, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but, to, but so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith. He's clearly saying there that our faith is a gift from God. Even our faith, that's not concocted out of our own free will or whatever. It's a gift from God. And therefore, it's a reason for none of us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. You can't take pride in your salvation because not only your faith, but also your repentance is a gracious gift given to you by God. God grants repentance. There are scores of verses in Scripture that say that. Acts 11, verse 18. Acts 5, verse 31. 2 Timothy 2, 25. All of those texts portray repentance as a gift from God. And furthermore, if you have a new heart and a new spirit and new righteous desires as a born-again person, it's not because you've reformed yourself. It's because God removed your stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh. That's the whole point of Ezekiel 36, 26. Salvation, all of it, is God's work in you. It's not something, not any part of it is anything that you accomplished by an act of your own free will. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which you no doubt could say from memory, says that very thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So you can't be arrogant and puffed up about it. Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which... God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's saying that even the good works we do as Christians were sovereignly and graciously prepared for us by God. And he is the one who ordained that we would walk in them. Yes, it involves your effort and your will and, and your work and all of that. But you don't get the credit for it because you wouldn't have the energy or the will or the desire to do those good things if God hadn't given it to you. What do you have that you didn't receive? That's how he asks the question. And the clear biblical answer is nothing. You don't have anything that God, uh, that God didn't give you as a gift. No good thing ever comes to you except as a gracious gift of God, a gracious gift from a kind and merciful God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And that ought to provoke gratitude and humility in us rather than pride, rather than arrogance, rather than division with one another and quarreling. And that brings us to the third of the three questions in this verse. The first, if you're following, taking notes, first was a question that exalts God's sovereignty. Then there was a question that extols divine grace. And finally, third, here is a question that exposes human pride. A question that exposes human pride. So look at the final question in this trilogy that makes up our verse. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It's a simple question. If every advantage you enjoy, if every virtue you possess came to you as a gracious gift from the hand of a loving God, why would you ever want to boast as if you deserve the credit for it? And Paul's point is this. Pride results from a serious corruption of the truth. Pride is not just a sin. It's an expression of bad doctrine. If you are proud... Your thinking was wrong. Your doctrine is wrong. Pride is the fruit of bad doctrine. You may give lip service to the sovereignty of God and the, and the centrality of divine grace, but if you are proud or arrogant, your life belies your theology. Your life contradicts your theology. The testimony of your behavior is ruining your confession of faith. To boast about what you've received by God's grace is to rob God of glory, and that's a serious sin. To take credit for what you have graciously received is to exalt yourself above God. And wasn't that the cause of Satan's fall in the first place? He was filled with pride because of how God had made him. 
And the Lord speaks, I think, through the prophet to Satan in Ezekiel 28, verse 17. And he says this, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. And everywhere it talks about the fall of Satan, it's the same thing. He was lifted up with pride and therefore he fell. And the whole universe, therefore, the whole universe of evil stems from that kind of pride. That's how evil it is. Pride is pervasive and it's often subtle. And true humility is not as easy to cultivate as you might think. It's, it's too easy to be proud of not being proud. You know what I mean? And, and no one is more arrogant than the person who's proud of his own humility. You know, of course, we would never boast. But the minute you make that claim, you're guilty of boasting. So whenever I hear some super spiritual person going on and on about his own unworthiness, I sometimes suspect that even that kind of talk is shot through with sinful self-confidence. Spurgeon said this, it's easy to be proud while sneering at pride. He said, uh, and to glorify yourself while you denounce self-exaltation. Because pride is a subtle serpent-like vice and it will insinuate itself into the most secret chamber and hide in the most unlikely places. He says, it will speak like an angel of light and cringe and fawn and display a mock modesty, which might also, which might almost de deceive even the very elect. He says it'll blush and be diffident and hesitating and pretend to be really modest. All the while, Spurgeon says, Lucifer himself is not more puffed up. We all struggle with that. All of us do. But listen, true Christian modesty is not that kind of artificial self-abasement. You can't attain genuine humility by self-flagellation or, or by a phony belittlement of your own gifts and abilities. Uh, my best friend, we've been friends for 50 years, Steve Kreloff. He's a pastor in Florida. I went to school with him more than 50 years ago. And he used to tell the story of a godly preacher who was speaking at a Bible college. And one of the students who wanted to impress this preacher with how humble he was, he came to the preacher and said, Dr. So-and-so, please pray for me that I will be nothing. And the preacher said, you are nothing. Just take it by faith. True humility is not a pretense. We're not supposed to pretend that we're empty and devoid of anything good, but rather authentic humility is the knowledge that whatever there may be that's good or spiritually useful in us, it's been given to us by the merciful hand of God, and therefore we're simply debtors to divine grace. We should glory in nothing of our own because we don't have anything good of our own. Everything good about us, everything good in us is a gift of God's grace that we don't really even deserve. That's why it's called grace. We don't deserve it at all. The Apostle Paul says that very thing in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Listen to verses 29 through 31 of chapter 1. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because you made such a wise choice. But because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, everything good in you is an expression of Christ who indwells you. It's not your own. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, before I close, let me draw a couple of doctrinal and practical lessons from this text. First of all, a point of doctrine. I think if you answer these questions honestly and let the truth that these questions suggest, let that inform your theology, 
you're going to be a Calvinist. You have to affirm the sovereignty of God. The logical and legitimate conclusion these questions drive us to should cause us to embrace the doctrines of grace. If you're a believer, you have to ask yourself, how did I become a Christian? Was it ultimately because of something I did? Or was it just a choice I made? Did it all hinge on me? Or was it solely because of the work of God in my heart? And I hope you know that it was God's work in you that drew you to Christ in the first place. Even if you weren't aware of it at the time, you wouldn't have been conscious of it. But still, you have to give glory to God for that. And in fact, in his commentary on this verse, John Gill quotes an Arminian who wrote, in answer to this text, the Arminian wrote, I make myself to differ since I could resist God and divine predetermination, but I've not resisted. So why may not I glory in it as my own? Now, obviously, that's not the answer the Apostle Paul was looking for. But that is the answer that Arminian doctrine suggests. And that's true of Pelagianism and open theism and every other kind of free will theology. They all ultimately exalt the sinner himself. And that's bad doctrine because it gives sinners grounds for boasting. And we don't have any good reason to boast. Here's a second doctrinal lesson. While we emphasize the truth that is suggested by these questions, that God is sovereign, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and that everything good in us is his doing, and it's to the praise of the, his, the glory of his grace, do not imagine for a moment that the converse of that is true. The biblical doctrine of divine sovereignty does not suggest that God is the author of evil, the evil that men do. It's not God's fault, it's their own. Nor does it mean that God is to blame when someone pursues a path of evil. James 1, verses 13 and 14. No, no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The reason people are evil is because that is their nature. That is, that is, that is their free will at work. You want to set your free will work, uh, to you want to set it free and let it govern your life it will draw you into evil in fact here's a simple principle and it may not sound fair but this is true biblically whatever good is in you god deserves the full credit for but whatever whenever some corruption or sinful desire or evil intuition uh, arises from you you have to take full responsibility for that. Does it seem unfair to you? You have to take the blame for everything bad in you, but you don't get the credit for any of the good. If that seems unfair, it's only because you don't understand the true depth of your own depravity. You're not capable of good without God's grace to empower you to do it. None of us are. So don't use the doctrine of God's sovereignty, like some people do, to make God the author or the efficient cause of evil. That's a corruption of biblical truth. That's the, it's really the heart of most brands of hyper-Calvinism. In fact, here's a third doctrinal lesson, closely related to the second one. Far from diminishing or eliminating human responsibility, the truth that underlies this text magnifies human responsibility. This, this truth doesn't remove responsibility from you. It actually puts the weight of responsibility on you because God has distinguished you from others by the gracious gifts that he has given to you. You have to acknowledge that. But scripture says, Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So grace doesn't eliminate human responsibility. It actually puts an additional weight of responsibility on us. Our responsibility is greater, not less, because of the sovereign work of God in our lives. And if you see God's sovereignty as something that contradicts human responsibility or eliminates human responsibility, then you have a warped and imbalanced view of the sovereignty of God. 
So those are the doctrinal lessons. Let me give you a couple of practical lessons. First, the truth of this text ought to move us to gratitude. If every good thing we possess is a gift from God, then we, we are profoundly indebted to God's grace. And, and that realization ought to make us perpetually thankful. In everything, give thanks. Instead of complaining and murmuring about the trials and hardships that we endure, we ought to focus on the many undeserved blessings that we enjoy daily. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And Lamentations 3.22 and 23 says, It's because of the Lord's great love that we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. In other words, if we, if we got what we really deserved, we would have been consumed, burned up by God's wrath long ago. But because he's a God of mercy and grace, we're not. So if it were not for the bounty of divine grace that all of us enjoy, every one of us would have been damned and destroyed long ago because of our sin. So remember that and give thanks even in the midst of your trials. The truth of this text, here's another practical lesson. It ought to move us to tenderness in our ministry to one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? Be patient with that brother or sister who seems slow to learn or slow to perceive or, or slow to agree with you. That tends to rankle us. But it shouldn't. Don't give up easily on, on someone who's still a prisoner to sin. But remember that the grace of God is the only reason you yourself are not in a worse condition than you are. You know, my mother was not a doctor of divinity. She was just a housewife and, and I loved her. She had a decent grasp of practical religion. And from my earliest years, I can remember her teaching me to look with compassion on people who are less fortunate than me, including people whose lives have been wrecked by their own sin. Be compassionate to them, she said. And whenever there was a story on, on the news, on television, about someone who was suffering the, from the miseries of sin because they reaped the fruit of a life of crime or something they did bad, my mom would never gloat, but she would always say with a mixture of sadness and gratitude, there but for the grace of God go I. She'd say that all the time. That's the truth of our text. And it's a profound theological and practical point. And finally, here's the sum of all the practical lessons of this text. Learn humility. Shun vanity. Develop a holy hatred for arrogance and pride. Think of what you would be without God's grace, and that will cure you of boasting about your own accomplishments. But realize that every good thing you have comes from God, and glorify the giver rather than the gifts, and certainly don't glorify the recipient of the gifts, especially if it's yourself. James 4 verse 6 says, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if we understand the truth of God's sovereign grace, that ought to make us humble. And that humility then is a channel for more grace, according to Scripture. And it keeps us perpetually reminded that we are utterly dependent on God's grace for every good thing that we need. And it would be foolish of me to assume that just because you came to a, a retreat on a weekend like this, that everyone in this room is a true believer. And I just want to say, if you're here today without Christ, these truths have a practical application for you as well. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never repented of your sin and yielded to him as Lord, there's a practical lesson for you here. And it's this, your only hope is divine grace. You are a fallen sinner with no potential to redeem yourself. You may intend to try to make yourself better through religion or whatever. It's not going to work. You have nothing good in you, but God has shown grace to you already simply by enabling you to hear the truth of his word. 
And now he calls you to repent of your sin and receive Christ as Savior just as you are. He doesn't demand that you improve yourself first. Repent of your sin and he will cleanse your heart. And he makes this gracious promise in John 1 verse 12 to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can't redeem yourself. But God will graciously redeem you if you set your faith on Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior and trust in him alone. And so I implore you in Christ's stead this morning, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth, which obviously is not just hurtful, but utterly devastating to human pride. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this truth as it penetrates our hearts to destroy our pride, to remove arrogance from us, to cause us to seek unity with our brethren and, and to express love to one another. May you heal us of all of our pride and puff uppery. Give us the grace of humility so that we might be recipients of that more grace that you promised to give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.